welcome to another episode of My Climate Diet, the podcast where I'm shedding the pounds of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Lisa Pettibone, and I want to talk about personal growth and degrowth. But before I start, I want to point out that this month in the U.S. and Canada is Black History Month. So I wanted to make sure to include Black voices in my first look at degrowth. I'm going to call this month here at the podcast Black Future Month, with a shout out to N.K. Jemison. Let me take a step back and talk about degrowth as a movement and a political vision. Let me define degrowth. I started reading Degrowth, Postwachstum, an introduction by Matthias Schmelzer and Antlea Feta. This book was published in Germany last year, and as far as I know, it hasn't yet been translated into English. It aims to present an overview of the growing literature and political movement that calls itself degrowth. The concept first gained traction in the 1990s and is primarily interested in questioning the idea of economic growth, particularly its connection to the good life. Despite the name, Degrowth is not about shrinking the economy, but about moving away from economic growth as a social and political goal. But it's not just a critique. Degrowth is also interested in presenting a utopian vision of another type of society. The German term postwachstum, post-growth, is perhaps more accurate here. Even if you've never heard of degrowth, you've probably seen bits of the movement. In the U.S., it sometimes goes by voluntary simplicity or minimalism. Germans often talk about sufficiency. On an individual level, this means turning away from mindless consumption and valuing time and experiences over money. If you want to get out of the rat race or go off the grid, you're thinking degrowth. But degrowth more broadly according to Schmelzer and Feta, critiques growth in a few different ways. The first argument is the sustainability argument, which is that there are fundamental ecological limits that we have exceeded. Technology cannot save us. We have to use fewer natural resources to avoid collapse. The key text here is The Limits to Growth, the first report to the Club of Rome in the 1970s. I'll call the next critiques personal. These say that beyond a certain point, more economic growth is not beneficial. In fact, it can be harmful to quality of life, making us too fat, have too much junk, be overworked and burned out. Unequal economic growth can also reduce quality of life and happiness as people who are relatively poorer feel worse off, even if they have a high living standard. There are also additional negative effects on those who internalize growth logics, which can alienate us from each other. You can think of Wally, the biggest loser, or Wall Street here. The third critique deals with exploitation and domination. Growth based on capitalism relies on exploitation. Capitalism requires an underclass of workers to do wage labor that is then translated into capital growth for managers and owners. 
Growth societies also exploit care work and roles traditionally assigned to women by taking advantage of them and not paying them in the same way that wage work, for example, is done. Ecofeminists also argue that work provided by nature is also exploited and dominated. And because growth is based on technology and infrastructure that requires domination, technological advance must be determined democratically and shared equitably. Much of this critique comes from feminist, ecofeminist, and Marxist thinkers. The last critique deals with the North-South divide, questioning normative terms that create this divide in the first place and have distinguished Europe from, say, Africa. So terms like civilized, developed, or progress. Is an industrialized country more civilized or developed from one with a more agricultural economy? This critique says we need to move away from these terms that fundamentally devalue countries and lifestyles in the global south and tell them that they should become more like countries in the global north. So degrowth is about challenging a political paradigm that says we need to grow the economy in order to be happy. As you can imagine, this has strong links to sustainability and climate change. Imagine if major corporations suddenly didn't need to sell more widgets this year than they did last year. For example, when Apple's Tim Cook said a few weeks ago that they were going to redesign their products to prevent them from being repaired. What if Tim Cook said, you know what, we want our products to be repaired. We want them to last a long time. We don't want you to buy a new iPhone this year. Or imagine if individuals didn't need to buy more clothes or gadgets to be happy. What if Apple didn't even need to say, don't buy a new iPhone this year? Most individuals could enjoy life without the latest smartphone or the 30th pair of jeans. Or imagine even if something other than a pure profit motive drove the fossil fuel industry. If ExxonMobil made decisions not based on how they could maximize their fourth quarter earnings. Do you think then they would spend money funding climate denialism? We'd be looking at a dramatically different world, right? And that's why I've been interested in degrowth. I think that many of its critiques get at the root of the problem that has brought us climate change. What I understand less, and the reason I'm sticking with degrowth for a whole year here on the podcast, is the positive vision of a degrowth future. If we don't want to grow, then what do we want? I'll have to save that for another time, but I'm on it. And I have my first book tip, which I'll get to in a minute. Now, many in the climate change and sustainability movements have argued for more inclusion and democratic decision-making to make a more sustainable world a reality. This starts with representation, which means sharing and understanding different perspectives. I've been pretty good at reading pros and cons on various climate issues, and when I teach, showing different views on hotly debated aspects of climate change, but I've not personally been very good at reading texts by racially diverse authors. And this is something that I've been ashamed of myself for a while now, 
that in particular that the texts that I assign my students are overwhelmingly by white men. So I thought I would challenge myself this month to only read black authors. Together with my book buying ban and my intention to talk about degrowth today, that proved to be quite the challenge. Enter Brian Gilmore. He is a law professor at Michigan State University who published a 2013 article in the journal Sustainability about the connections between degrowth and racial inequality. He argues that U.S. growth happened on the backs of enslaved blacks. He asks, he asks, can the U.S. and its citizens become a credible participant towards a sustainable future without first addressing this historical inequality? He then suggests that degrowth may be something understandable to blacks when linked to the problem of inequality. He links this also to restorative justice, a way to implement the redistribution and restructuring called for by degrowth advocates, and in particular, Serge Latouche, a French thinker who has written quite a lot about degrowth. So for Gilmore, degrowth is a subject that connects to historical inequality that is particularly challenging for Blacks in the U.S., but at the same time, the degrowth movement hasn't explicitly mentioned a racial component. And he sees two challenges to degrowth really fully connecting to the Black community. And that's the first challenge he sees is that environmentalism is historically linked to middle class and upper middle class whites. There is a strong environmental justice movement and now a climate justice movement in the U.S. that is led to a large degree by people of color. But it is true that environmentalism has a very white hue to it somehow. The second challenge for him is that it's hard to tell people to move away from growth when they aren't yet satisfied with their living standard. This is a critique that degrowth has gotten in the name of communities in the global south, the idea that the rich world can't tell the poor world, okay, now growth isn't the deal anymore, so you have to not do what we've been doing the last 200 years. This is a very legitimate critique that needs addressing. But Gilmore is still hopeful, and he ends by citing Sally Matthews, a senior lecturer at the University of Rhodes in South Africa, who argues that traditionally marginalized groups should make decisions regarding growth in their nations. I love this idea, and I'm going to look more into her work in the coming months. So Gilmore has quite a bit to say about degrowth, why it hasn't yet been accepted by Blacks and how it could make inroads in Black studies and among Black authors. But it was the only text on degrowth by a Black person I could find. I'm going to keep looking, and I would love any suggestions you have. But after my initial search came up with so little, I thought I would ask Brian himself if he had other reading suggestions or any thoughts on this. And here's what he said. There are not any other Black writers I know who have interest in the topic, and there were not many in Montreal. This is where he presented the paper. Degrowth has enormous implications for countries below the equator, though, and for Blacks in, say, the southern states in the U.S. Why aren't we at the conferences? 
I don't know. I think I have a quote in my paper about it. You have inspired me nonetheless. I will revisit degrowth more now, and it is, regardless of the politics, part of the solution, in my opinion. So this made me think, well, is degrowth then a white concept? Is it even okay to try to look for black thinkers who've written on it? Or should I be looking for black visions of the future? As N.K. Jemison calls for in her essay, How Long Till Black Future Month. She's written extensively on the spectrum of science fiction, fantasy, and speculative fiction. And I think the closest she's gotten to degrowth in what I've read is her excellent steampunk riff, The Effluent Engine, which you should read. But here, she doesn't necessarily talk about, well, she doesn't talk about economic growth at all. What she talks instead about is a democratic technological advance owned collectively by Black revolutionaries as a way to fight off colonialists. So this has connection to degrowth in the sense that it's a democratic, anti-hierarchical, and anti-domination ownership of technology, but there are other aspects of degrowth that it doesn't touch on. Before I finish rambling about degrowth today, though, I want to make two connections. First, I want to expand what Brian Gilmore pointed out in his piece, that it can be understandable to Blacks when linked to inequality. I would go one step further and say that degrowth is acutely interested in attacking inequality by abolishing growth as a tool to promote it. When I think of growth, I think of a pie that keeps getting bigger. Because it keeps growing, the guy with the biggest piece can keep his slice because maybe someone else will get the next one. Inequality can hide behind the excuse of growth. The myth is that everyone has a chance next time. With degrowth, because we don't wanna grow the pie, we need to think more carefully about who gets what's there. Degrowth has a lot of interesting policy ideas about this, but what I've seen so far is colorblind. It's the idea of guaranteeing that everybody gets a fair minimum share. So it would be interesting to see if, for example, writers of color who start writing about degrowth use arguments like reparations in talking about equitable distribution. And second, I want to go to an essay by Ta-Nehisi Coates called Between the World and Me. Coates talks a lot about the American dream as one based on plunder and domination, and in particular, domination of black bodies. And I want to read a little section of the end of Coates's essay. Plunder has matured into habit and addiction. The people who could author the mechanized death of our ghettos, the mass rape of private prisons, then engineer their own forgetting, must inevitably plunder much more. This is not a belief in prophecy, but in the seductiveness of cheap gasoline. Once, the dream's parameters were caged by technology and by the limits of horsepower and wind. But the dreamers have improved themselves and the damming of seas for voltage, the extraction of coal, the transmuting of oil into food, have enabled an expansion of plunder with no known precedent. And this revolution 
has freed the dreamers to plunder not just the bodies of humans, but the body of the earth itself. The earth is not our creation. It has no respect for us. It has no use for us. And its vengeance is not the fire in the cities, but the fire in the sky. Something more fierce than Marcus Garvey is riding on the whirlwind. Something more awful than all our African ancestors is rising with the seas. The two phenomena are known to each other. It was the cotton that passed through our chained hands that inaugurated this age. It is the flight from us that sent them sprawling into the subdivided woods and the methods of transport through these new subdivisions across the sprawl is the automobile, the noose around the neck of the earth, and ultimately the dreamers themselves. The whole time I read this essay, I thought, wow, how can I care about climate change when black people are getting killed by the police every day, to put it bluntly. So I was, it made me hopeful in a way, I guess, to read that the end of the essay connects this plunder of black bodies to a growth mechanism that has caused climate change. I think degrowth can offer a new vision, one based on equality and concern for each other and the planet that nurtures us. Degrowth invites us to care for each other, creating space to lift up the poor, the oppressed, the plundered and dominated from the void left by the need to dominate in the first place. I think that Blacks and other people of color and historically marginalized groups could benefit a lot from a degrowth vision. And I would like to see a more diverse population of voices engage with it, even if it's to say, no thanks, not for me. There's definitely space within the degrowth critique of domination beyond exploitation of women and the earth to domination of blacks and other non-white populations. I'm going to keep looking for non-white voices on these issues and trying to promote them when I can. I'm also going to think carefully about how I can be a better ally. If you have any thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them. What's giving me hope this week? The Guardian stopped taking advertising from fossil fuel companies. This gives me so much hope. Moving forward, I think an important part of the fight for climate action is showing that a fossil fuel-based economy is not normal and it's not okay. That's the first step to getting away from it, is presenting fossil fuels as what they need to be now in a climate change world, not acceptable, radical, and immoral. The Industrial Revolution happened basically after slavery was outlawed, and both were basically a massive energy source to produce economic value on a societal scale. Slavery was abolished in large part because moral arguments against it began to weigh the economic defense. I think a lot about Bill McKibben when he talks about the economic value that will be lost if we move away from fossil fuels in terms of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground that are on the books of fossil fuel companies, multiple trillions of dollars that will be lost once we as a global society agree this cannot be tapped. 
And I was thinking this was also Coates who talks about how much money was in the slavery economy right before the Civil War in the United States. How did that completely change the economy of the United States? And that the arguments of, yeah, we need to keep slaves so that we can keep our economy intact, the only way to counter them, or the way that historically they were countered successfully at last, was with a moral argument. So the more I think about it, I think that this is kind of how it needs to go with fossil fuels. At any rate, a big thanks to The Guardian. I've been thinking about subscribing. I haven't yet, but I may just have to. Thanks for listening and for talking. Last night, I went to an event on world building and speculative fiction at Ellery Studio. And I met a handful of people passionate about thinking about the future and the role of fiction in doing that. And the one author every single one of them recommended to me, Octavia Butler. That was me slapping myself. What a duh moment. Here is one of the most important writers of speculative fiction in the past decades, someone I even know about by having read a book inspired by her writing, someone who is probably the writer of science fiction most likely to have a degrowth and racial equality perspective. I've never read anything by her. For shame. So I'm going to spend the second half of Black Future Month checking out Parable of the Sower, a cautionary tale about the world racked by climate change and wealth inequality in 2020. Could that maybe have something interesting to say to us today? Hmm? Uh, yeah. So a big thanks to Mathanda Stender, Vincent Maynott, and Carmen Schmoe for the great discussions and the book tips. Next episode. So I said last time that I was going to talk about Climate Diet 101, but I think next time I'm going to finish off Black Future Month with some reading tips on Black speculative fiction. I hope you'll tune in for that. This podcast is a labor of love, and you can show me you care by telling me why you listen at lisa at myclimatediet.org. Thanks to David from Quince for letting me use his wonderful music. And if you want to stay up to date, follow me on Twitter at Lisa Pettibone. And don't forget to rate My Climate Diet on Apple Podcasts. That makes it easier for other people to find me and start their own climate diet. Because if everyone went on a climate diet, it wouldn't be the end of the world. I told you.